I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. The context for 2 Kings chapter 6 is the 9th century before Christ, the 800s, if you will, before Christ. Elisha is in the middle of his prophetic ministry, and temporarily he's staying in a little village called Dothan. It's about 12 miles northeast of Samaria, which in turn is north of Jerusalem. Just a small little town and village. The king of Syria to the north of Israel is greatly troubled because he has a problem. And he learns that the problem is the man of God. And he wants to deal with that problem. Because the man of God has been giving Israel advance warning of Israel's plans. So we're going to pick it up at verse 8. I'm going to read through verse 17. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go. And see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He, Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so it's early in the morning, this little village of Dothan. The servant gets ready to get out of bed, and he pauses and thinks to himself, I'm hearing some noises I haven't heard before. He gets up out of bed, determines to determine what this, seeks to determine what this is all about. So he walks outside of his room, and he hears the noises again. They seem to be coming from outside the walls. And so he goes up the little steps to the walls, 
and he comes up and stares, he can hardly believe what he sees. All around this little village of Dothan are horses and chariots and thousands, probably, of soldiers of Syria. All around the village. Think of the shock that must have greeted this young servant of Elisha. Quite easy to understand his shock. All the army of Syrians around the city and inside is just Elisha, the servant himself, and perhaps a few little Dothanites who lived in the village. That, if you go back up to verse 14, where we read that the king of Syria sent horses and chariots to great army, they came by night and surrounded the city. They liked the idea of impressive numbers. The heathen notion of power was overkill. Let's make sure we win this battle. So the battle of this case was Elisha the prophet, the man of God. The king, our king, wants us to get him and seize him and bring him to himself. Alas, my master, what shall we do as he returns to his master, returns to Elisha with that question? It's a universal cry, isn't it? And often it comes not just from people out there in the world, but even from people within the church. As citizens of a nation, as families, as individuals, we climb up on our walls of protection, and the walls don't seem to be very protective because we see all kinds of things out there that cause us to think, what shall we do? Right now, the stock market is doing very well, but we know there are times when you begin to lose money. What shall we do? The loss of a job or threat of a loss. What are we going to do? For you young people, the demanding requirements of your teachers, even if they're your parents who give you an assignment, you think, oh, I don't know how I'm ever going to do this. What am I going to do? Interpersonal difficulties with your family or your circle of acquaintance. What shall we do? Difficulties of physical health. What shall we do? Political things going on that we know is inconsistent with the Word of God. What shall we do? Attacks on Christianity and alarming statistics in which people are staying away from the church and attendance. What shall we do? A great army of horses and chariots surround us on every side. And as you sit here right this morning, right before me, Many of you probably have some Syrian soldiers that are threatening you. The horses of corruption, crime, immorality, rebellion against authority, desecration of things sacred are, are pawing and snorting around you. The chariots of unbelief and indifference, apostasy, boredom, apathy, cults, and just plain ignorance of the Bible circling around you, what shall we do, especially as a church? And these are the things we so clearly 
see. Indeed, it is impossible not to see them. Just like Elisha's servant. All he could see that morning was this army around the little village of Dothan. How often do you see that army when you get up in the morning? Maybe not every morning. But you get up and you think to yourself, oh, wow. How am I going to handle this? How am I going to deal with this? Those are the things we see. But we also need to understand here in 2 Kings 6, there are things we don't see which we should see. Probably many of you are familiar with these little things called magic pictures. And it looks like just a humble jumble of designs and lines and figures. Seems to be nothing there. But as you take that and stare at one particular spot for a while, it might take 10 seconds, 30 seconds, all of a sudden things come into focus. You see, there are some fish there. I see them. There are planets there. I didn't see that before. All these objects there, right there before me, now I see what I didn't see. It's so easy for us to see what is going on out there with our physical eyes. We miss things that we should see, but we're not seeing. This young servant went to his master What shall we do? And notice how Elisha responds to him. Do not be afraid. And I have a hunch that when Elisha said that, it went through the servant's mind, yeah, I knew that's what he was going to say. (laughs) Just like when people seek help from us or they're showing concern, what what do we do? Don't don't worry about it. Just be calm. calm. Take a deep breath. It's kind of a natural thing for us to do. So right away, those are the words that Elisha gives. Do not be afraid. Nevertheless, we do know people that don't seem to have that concern of fearfulness. They seem to be very calm, and they do take it well. Great peace and confidence. Now, Calvinists always should be that way, right? We're a Calvinistic church. We believe in Calvinistic doctrine, the Reformed doctrine of faith, uh, put together so beautifully by John Calvin, therefore the name Calvinism. We believe in the sovereignty of God. God controls all things. So nothing really should bother us. But of course, we're still finite creatures. We're still wrestling with simple problems. And uh, we do have that tendency to get fearful at times. But we should remember that God, our sovereign God, has pledged to defend his people. And in his prophetic office, Elisha was certainly a type of Jesus Christ, the great prophet. And we read about his ministry, particularly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's one thing we notice, with one exception, I'll tell you what that is in just a moment. Jesus was never afraid. You never find him dealing with the scribes and Pharisees and coming to his disciples and saying, men, how am I going to handle this? What are we going to do? Jesus is always in charge. The one exception, of course, is as he approached the cross. And in his true humanity, he felt the terror of the moment 
not only the horror of a Roman crucifixion, but the fact that the sins of his people were, in a way we can't fully understand, were being laid upon him. And thankfully, although he was fearful, he went all the way and suffered and died for sinners like us. That we might have that sin problem taken care of and have eternal life. So Elisha's a type of that, his not being afraid and his trust in the sovereign Lord. Verse 16. He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha understood the reality and power of the unseen spiritual world. The unseen spiritual world. Obviously, we think of God himself. We're told in John 4.24, Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is a spirit. And the little children's catechism says, what is God? God is a spirit and has not a body like man. God is real, but he doesn't have hard flesh and physical things as we think of them. Yet he's very, very real. He's the great unseen reality. We read in Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw God in his affairs as he served the Lord in a spiritual sense, even though God was invisible to him. You say, I've always had a hard time trying to understand God. Well, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, Jesus used the illustration in another context in John chapter 3, the wind. The wind blows outside. I know it's blowing right now, a little bit. We don't see the wind, but we say it's windy. Look, the wind is blowing. We don't see the wind, but my, how real the wind is. As we are in this room right now, some kind of radio waves are going back and forth. That's why if you were to turn your cell phone on right now or a radio, you pick up a radio station or you get contact with the email, the cell towers. You don't see these things. You don't say, well, I don't believe they exist. They're very real. They're just unseen. But by faith in those kind of faith that you have evidence there is a, such a thing as a wind, that you have evidence there's such a thing as radio waves, you trust and accept that by faith. That's how we need to approach the spiritual world, the unseen spiritual world. By faith, based upon the evidence, of course, in the Word of God. But notice that he says... In verse 16, do not be afraid for those who are with us. There's a plural there. Not he who is with us, God, Jehovah, but those who are with us. And that has to be the angelic world. The angelic world, that sphere of creation, which served the purposes of God, his special servants, who for the most part, operate behind the visible scenes. 
It's interesting that angels aren't mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. Have you ever noticed that? talks about the creation of light and vegetation and animals and man himself. Not a word about angels. Yet they're revealed in the Bible as very, very real. Now, skeptics, of course, deny this as incredible. But if we take the Bible seriously, we have to realize, we have to be aware of these angelic beings we call angels. We're talking right now about the good angels, the righteous angels, the sinless angels. Let me read to you this quotation from Phillips Brooks. He was the man who wrote the words to Old Little Town of Bethlehem, but he was a poet and a Bible scholar of sorts. And he has these interesting things to say. There is nothing clearer or more striking in the Bible than the calm, familiar way with which, from end to end, it assumes the present existence of a world of spiritual beings always close and acting on this world of flesh and blood. It does not belong to any one part of the Bible. It runs throughout its whole vast range, from creation to judgment. The spiritual beings are forever present. They act as truly in the drama as the men and women who, with their unmistakable humanity, walk the sacred stage in the successive scenes. There is nothing of hesitation about the Bible's treatment of the spiritual world. There's no reserve, no vagueness which would leave a chance for the whole system to be explained away into dreams and metaphors. The spiritual world is just as real as the crowded cities and the fragrant fields and the loud battlegrounds of the visible Judah in which the writers of the sacred books were living. You take away the unseen world with all its unseen actors from the story, and you have not merely made the Bible like other books, you have set it below other books. For you have taken the color out of all its life, the motive out of all its action. Friends, we must not forget this world. We must learn as best as possible, the Lord helping us, to see what so often we forget is there. The unseen spiritual world, the reality of that world. It's there. And of course, we walk not by sight, but by faith. We can't see it with our physical eyes. We don't experience with our physical uh, capacities. And yet, there's that spiritual element. Let's not forget that. Elijah, Elijah does not leave his servant hanging there with just this remarkable statement in verse 16. He goes on in verse 17. What does he do? Then Elisha prayed. Elisha knew this young man who's still shaking and trembling before him needs something else. And so he prays, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And now his physical eyes were very well open, weren't they? He saw the soldiers out there. He knew where Elisha was, came right to him. He saw, but now Elisha's asking him to see what previously he had not seen. What did he see? The Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, 
the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. How do we imagine what that scene was? I wonder if an artist would even be able to paint it. Perhaps they, they, they could. It would be a challenge to do that. It takes special people to do that. How do we try to grasp what this scene was that he saw? Well, we can't say exactly what it was. A well-respected Bible scholar, Gerhardus Voss, he suggested certain things. He said it might have been some kind of inner field of vision or some psychial reproduction or the external bodily eye. He threw those phrases out there. I'm not even sure what all those mean. Trying to understand what it was. But here's the key thing. What that young man saw was very real. To make it simply a symbol, a symbolic picture of something, would not have satisfied this man, because when this picture went away, there the soldiers still were. There had to be something of substance. That, that young man needed assurance. He needed encouragement with all those soldiers outside the walls. And so he saw all around Dothan, which sat on a mount, little bit of a mountain, a little bit of a rise, was the scene of chariots and horses. Now, those were the military things of the day. Therefore, they were used as well as corresponding to the real chariots and horses that were outside the walls. Elisha had prayed, Lord, help him understand that those who are out there are more than those that we see outside our walls. He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Those who are with us, it's personal. Angels are personal beings. So there's the account given to us in the Word of God. I focus particularly on verses 15, 16, and 17. Now I'd like us to kind of learn how to see what we don't see. We've already looked at considered God himself. How about the person of Jesus Christ in his public ministry, but also from the very beginning of his existence as a human being in the womb of Mary, and at his birth, angels were present. In his temptation, you have the evil, great evil angel, the devil himself, tempting Jesus. And one of the temptations the devil made was what? Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Come on, Jesus, you can trust your angels. That was a temptation he gave. After the temptation in Matthew 4.11, we read that angels came to minister to Jesus out there in the wilderness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in the Scriptures that there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And as Judas came with the mob to seize Jesus and arrest him. Remember these words of Jesus? I've always liked these. 
You think that I cannot pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think I'm getting overwhelmed with this, and I'm really impressed with what I see out here? I could call down 12 legions of angels. Thankfully, he didn't do that. Thankfully, he went all the way to the cross and did not yield to that temptation, as well as others. But he was very much aware of the reality of angels. How about applying this to worship? To worship. I read, ran across this phrase some time ago, and it pops up here and there, and so you might hear me use it again in a future message. Worship is the lunge toward reality. What's a lunge? A, you move toward something with force. You lunge toward it. Have you ever thought coming to a worship service like this, you're coming to lunge toward the reality that we often forget that's real, the unseen world, the things of God, the things of angels, the things of Jesus Christ, the things of the Holy Spirit. We know I have that thought in mind of leaving the so-called real things of our life that are very real that we see and lunging toward the things we don't always think about, we don't always see, but we need to try to see them more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Wow, that's a great vision to have, isn't it? Think above our normal life and think of the reality of the things of the Word of God. How about applying what we read in 2 Corinthians 6 and considered to just living day by day by faith. How very strong is the pressure of outward, visible things? They're there day after day after day. Family duties. Employment responsibility. Yeah, i got to get up and go to work. Tasks in the church. School assignments. Trials and discouragements that come our way. All very, very real. The world of earth, of time, of senses. We see this so clearly. And as I mentioned earlier in this message, each day as we arise, there are the Syrian soldiers and the chariots and the horses waiting to greet us as we get up and peer over our walls that day. And you think, what shall I do? What shall we do? It's at those moments that we need to remember who we are. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He's my Lord, my Savior. I trust in God, my Lord, my Redeemer, my Rock. I need to keep that in mind. Now, of course, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, then this is kind of meaningless to you. You might still be sitting here thinking, well, I don't believe in that stuff. So I would urge you, exhort you in the name of Jesus Christ to come to him. To call out to him. He is real. He has ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again. But by his Spirit, he can come into your life. Even as he's come into the life of so many who are in this room today.
And then we need that daily faith, recognizing that we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places, the challenges that will come. We need to meditate on promise texts like uh, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. John 14.1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust also in me. Remember that those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And add to that Paul's words in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? How about it? Heaven. We think about heaven from time to time. We're interested in heaven, and hopefully we're longing for heaven and looking forward to the time when, by God's grace, we will be in heaven. What's heaven like? Well, that's part of the unseen world. We don't see it with our physical eyes, but by faith we believe there is a place called heaven where God dwells on his throne. But what what about the new heavens and the new earth? What's that going to be like? Randy Alcorn has written a book on heaven. I don't agree with everything in the book. A lot of it is something speculative, but sometimes we have to do that. We go as far as the word of God takes us, and then we think, well, maybe it means this. So I pass this little quotation on to you for what you might find it helpful. He says, it might be better if we think of the location of the present heaven as not in another universe but simply as part of ours that we are unable to see due to our spiritual blindness. If that's true, when we die, we don't go to a different universe, but to a place within our universe that we're currently unable to see. Just as blind people cannot see the world, even though it exists all around them, we are unable to see heaven in our fallen condition. Is it possible that before sin and the curse, Adam and Eve saw clearly what is now invisible to us? Is it possible that heaven itself is but inches away from us? My first year, my first days at Westmont College, the very first week receiving homework assignments, the Moody Institute of Science had a conference going on downtown Santa Barbara. And I went to it every night. It was so interesting. I look back upon those days and wonder, how did I do that? and still do my homework. (laughs) Not much time left. But one of the things that he mentioned, again, I pass this on, just something interesting, kind of relates to what he says here. He took his hands like this, and he says, you know, God has put the molecules as he's created, so here we are in this world. Cannot Almighty God simply switch the molecules a little bit? Old earth, old heaven, new earth. New heaven. Is that a hard thing for God to do? Who made the molecules? So these are the things of the the spiritual world. We have to be careful we don't go beyond Scripture. But at least we can kind of think about that. That's a possibility. 
The important thing to remember is that this is a real thing. Heaven is real. Hell is real. If you do not get right with Jesus, you're on your way to eternal damnation and condemnation. That's real. But heaven also, for eternal life with our Lord, is real. And finally, another thought to apply this text to ourselves is simply the need we have for God to reveal this truth to us. Look again at the beginning of the 17th verse. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Lord, I can't do this, but I think this is something that my servant really needs. So, Lord, you, please open his eyes that he can see. And if God had not honored his request, nothing would have happened. If we were to understand the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the Savior, the Lord, we must have our spiritual eyes opened, and only God can do that. And so if that has not happened to you, you need to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, help me here. I need this. I cry out to you to work in my life that I might understand this better and come to understand what it means to truly be a believer in Jesus Christ. The great need of people today is for God's grace to be revealed to them. And that's done primarily, of course, in the written word of God. He opens up our heart to be able to understand it. He gives us the gift of faith to be able to reach out to it. And then by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, he illumines us in the sense of understanding more and more as we grow in our faith and understanding of the word of God. We're learning to see spiritual things. Things in this book we see with our physical eyes, and spiritual truth comes out. We claim it. We accept it. We build it into our lives day by day by day. Don't expect the vision of angels that the servant saw in Elisha's time. There's a verse in one of our hymns, Here faith reveals to mortal eyes. Talk about the gospel. Here faith reveals to mortal eyes a brighter world beyond the skies. Here shines the light which guides our way from earth to realms of endless day. We look at that magic picture. We stare at it. We don't see anything in particular except what's right before us. And then suddenly we see the fish. We see the planets. We see the athletes. We hadn't seen it before. There it is. We come to the word of God. We look at it, we study it, sometimes we just don't get much from it, and then suddenly the Spirit opens the Bible to us. I never thought about that before. What a neat insight that is. What a blessing to be able to see what before I could not see. May God give each of you and myself greater understanding of his most precious word. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Those of us that have come to trust in Jesus, we we realize that the Spirit had to open our hardened hearts up first and then give us a wonderful gift of faith and understanding that we are sinners that need the work of Jesus on our behalf. So continue to bless and minister to us in this time of worship. 
as we get in touch with this other reality that's there that we often ignore to our detriment. And we shall praise and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.